Hello there, welcome back to our study of 1 Kings. We're in 1 Kings chapter 9. Once again today we'll be looking at verses 10 to 28. So we'll finish up this chapter. We saw last time that uh, the Lord appeared to Solomon and uh, gave him a sort of warning, right? Encouraged him uh, to continue to be faithful to the Lord and to his word and to do what God has uh, told him to do. For example, in um, verse 4, he says, As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, and then he goes on. So Solomon has completed the temple. God has heard Solomon's prayer for the dedication of the temple. God has said that his eyes will be continually upon the temple and um, God's presence has come to dwell in the temple. But that does not mean that Solomon can now do whatever he wants as though, um, you know, he's sort of done the things that God wanted him to do and now he can presume on God's uh, faithfulness and grace to him. It doesn't mean that at all. He still has to continue, continue to be faithful to the Lord, which unfortunately, as we know, he is not going to do. But that's later in the story today. We're going to finish up chapter 9 where uh, we get sort of a bird's eye view of some of the things that were going on under Solomon's reign in the kingdom of Israel and brings this section to a close. Verse 10 says, At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. So at the beginning of this long section about the building of the temple and of Solomon's house as well, remember that Solomon and Hiram uh, teamed up um, and Hiram provided materials and whatnot for Solomon to build uh, the temple and uh, Solomon was providing uh, food for Hiram. And now here at the end, uh, we're told that after everything was done and uh, both of those houses have been completed and whatnot, that Hiram gave, or excuse me, Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities. But Hiram was not impressed. <laughs> he didn't like those cities. Um, he didn't think that was um, significant recompense for uh, what Hiram had done. What Hiram had done, verse 14, is sent the king 120 talents of silver. Now, these talents here um, are, in, by our measurement, 75 pounds. So you can do the math. 120 times 75, that's how many pounds of gold Hiram had sent to King Solomon. And uh, again, he didn't think that the cities that Solomon provided for him in exchange were worth as much, apparently, as he had given to Solomon. 
Then verse 15 says, And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Millo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh king, of Egypt, excuse me, yeah, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Haran and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion. Let's pause there. In other words, Solomon was doing a whole lot of building. A lot of cities Solomon built up. He built up a wall for the city of Jerusalem. Who's going to do all that work? Who's providing all of that labor. Now we saw earlier in the book that uh, Solomon uh, drafted labor from the Israelites, uh, people who uh, worked for him, but they worked in shifts. There was a rotation. Uh, these are not Israelites who are working for him. This is uh, forced labor from um, people of the nations. If we continue on in verse 20, it says, All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves, they were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. So for the Israelites were reserved of significant positions. They still had to work, of course, um, but they were not drafted as slaves. The forced labor, the slave labor that Solomon used came from these nations that Israel was supposed to not just drive out, but wipe out earlier in their history, but they had failed to do that. If you go and read um, in Joshua and in the book of Judges, both of those books tell us that um, though Israel conquered the promised land like they were supposed to in Joshua, they didn't ever drive out all the nations like they were supposed to or devote them to destruction like they were supposed to. So they were remaining uh, nations that Israel was not supposed to be in fellowship with living in the promised land and Solomon used them for his forced labor, uh, his slave labor to complete uh, the building of these cities. So one of the things that that reminds us of is that Solomon is continuing a story that started before him and will continue after him. Whenever you're reading the Bible, it's always helpful to have a good idea of where you are in the storyline, where you are in this uh, narrative that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And we are past the promises to Abraham, where God promised uh, the land of Canaan to Abraham and his offspring. He told them that they would not, he told Abraham that his descendants would not take the land just yet because 
the sin of the Amorites, I believe it was he mentioned in particular, was not yet complete. Um, and then after God brought them out of Egypt at the Exodus, and they wandered through the promised land because they didn't trust God to give them the promised land because they were afraid of the people living there. After that generation died in the wilderness over a period of 40 years and they came into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, then they conquered the land, uh, took it from those people, and um, the people that they were taking the land from, it's important to remember, they were not... Uh, neutral nations. They were not good people. If you read in um, like Leviticus 20, I think it is, um, and uh, I think in Deuteronomy as well, uh, about these nations, you will find that they were doing disturbing, sinful, awful things. And the reason why God told Israel to destroy these nations was one, Israel was acting as God's arm to bring judgment on these nations that were sinful and rebellious, sort of like Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of raining fire out of heaven, God sent his people as an army to destroy these nations. Um, so that's part of what was going on. Another part of what was going on is that God knew that if his people lived in the midst of these nations, that they would um, be drawn to their idols, to their false gods, and would be turned away from the one true and living God. Of course, that happened anyway, right? Israel turned away from the Lord, um, even despite the fact that they had removed many of these nations from around them. So there's a, a continuing story going on, and Solomon is having to deal with the failures of previous generations, that they didn't fully obey the Lord. They didn't do all that God told them to do, as we're told in um, Joshua and in Judges. And so Solomon has inherited this problem, and part of the way he's dealing with it is by using these uh, nations for forced labor. Um, so uh, that's what's going on there. Now let's, let's keep going. Uh, verse 23, these were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. 550 who had charge of the people who carried out the work. That gives you an idea of how grand the scope is. Everything that Solomon does, he seems to do on a massive scale. He's got 550 people who are in charge of all this labor. That's a lot of bosses, right? Uh, verse 24, But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the millow. So remember, uh, Solomon not only built his own house and built the temple, he built a house for the daughter of Pharaoh, who was given to him in marriage. And so she took up residence in her house. Solomon has his house. And the Lord, of course, uh, has blessed his house, uh, the temple. Then verse 25 says, Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Now, why three times a year? Why did Solomon go three times a year to offer offerings, sacrifices, at the temple? Well, most likely, uh, this means that Solomon was participating in the three feasts that every male Israelite was supposed to celebrate each year. 
In the book of Exodus, chapter 23, uh, part of the instructions that God gave to Israel include instructions about celebrating these three feasts uh, each year. Exodus 23:14 says, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt." None shall appear before me empty-handed. So that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the feast that goes along with the Passover. That's why it's dated from the time when Israel left Egypt. So one of the feasts is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Second one, verse 16, You shall keep the Feast of Harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So this is part of the law that Solomon is supposed to know, have copied, be meditating on, be living in accord with. And so these uh, verses, or this verse in uh, 1 Kings 9, tells us that Solomon is doing that. He's paying attention to the law. He's celebrating these three feasts that he's required to be a part of each year. And as a part of those feasts, he is offering up sacrifices to the Lord. So at least at this part, he is still honoring the Lord. He is still keeping the law. He is still doing what a good king ought to do. And then finally, verse 26 to 28 says, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from their gold 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. So now, so Solomon and Hiram are still working together. As one uh, commentator said, the uh, offense that Hiram took over the cities that uh, Solomon had given him, that Hiram was not impressed with, um, he, just because of that, Hiram wasn't foolish enough to um, stay out of a lucrative partnership with Solomon. So Hiram provides um, seamen, sailors, to go um, with uh, Solomon's fleet of ships to go um, gather gold. They bring gold from Ophir, 420 talents. Remember, Hiram had sent to Solomon 120 talents. That was a lot. Again, these talents, 75 pounds is what that equals. Now they've brought back together 420 talents of gold. And that was brought uh, to King Solomon. So Solomon is being blessed richly. He has prospered abundantly in what he has done. And in this sense, up to this point, Solomon seems to be the kind of king, um, the kind of man that Psalm 1 speaks of. Remember Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. In all that he does, he prospers. Right? Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So Solomon appears to be meditating on the law. He's being faithful to the Lord. He's observing the feasts. And the Lord has prospered him in all that he does. His reign is fruitful. It's abundant. He's built so many cities and built a wall and built a temple and built a house. 
He has gathered in so much gold. Um, he, he's, uh, his household, as we saw uh, in an earlier chapter, is provided so much food. There's so much richness and blessing, the glory and goodness of Solomon's reign up to this point gives us just a taste, just a hint of what it will be like when the true, ultimate King of Kings comes, Jesus himself. The abundance and glory and blessing and prosperity of his kingdom, of his rule, of his reign, is just hinted at by the glory of Solomon's reign. And next time, uh, Lord willing, we'll dig into 1 Kings chapter 10, which is where the Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And perhaps there's more to that story than most of us have realized before. Look forward to digging into that chapter with you next time. God bless.